Hey, Bobby here. Welcome to Quotalist, where software sales leaders and professionals share ideas to help you master your mind, your business, and your time. Remember, when we embrace practice, develop awareness, and align our efforts, we can rise above the deal. We can live Quotalist. Hey everyone, I'm Bobby Dysart, and this is Quotalist. Today's episode is sponsored by my podcasting partner, SalesCast. They offer revenue-first podcasts for entrepreneurs and sales leaders. You can catch me as well as founders Colin and Chris hanging out on Slack in their podcasting community. If you're interested, it's free to join. Just head over to salescast.co. And before I introduce today's guest, it's time for one question trivia. Uh Andy, in reading your book, Sell Without Selling Out, I actually noticed you quoted, I think a few times, but I, I know for sure once you quoted uh, a famous Stoic by the name of Seneca. And mm-hmm. if I have any opportunity to quote Stoics, I'm going to take it. Actually, it was Epictetus. <laughs> oh, Epictetus, that's what I thought. All right, yeah. all right, all right. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Well, Epictetus shows up in this next one. So anyway. So uh, I'm going to read this quote and give you four choices to name who said it, which Stoic said it. Okay. Um, So the quote is, remember, matter, how tiny your share of it, time, how brief and fleeting your allotment of it, fate, how small a role you play it, play in it. Mm -hmm. That A, Epictetus, B, Seneca. C, Marcus Aurelius, or D, Cato? Uh, I guess I'm with Marcus Aurelius. Boom. <laughs> Get it again. It's Marcus Aurelius. Okay. He wrote it in his classic meditations. Yes. Seems like that was a little bit of a guess. Uh, no. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's definitely a guess. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. No, it's all good. Have you read that book? I've read some of it. Yeah. Some of the meditations excerpts from and so on. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's that kind of book, right? It's like you, you just peel a little, little piece out at a time. You don't, you don't yeah, know. you come across it as you're doing other reading and, and you look it up and yeah, it's like how I came up with that quote, uh, the name I mispronounced. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. Cool. Well, welcome to Quotalist. Thank you. Um, we have uh, we have today uh, for the listeners listening in uh, Andy Paul. He's an entrepreneur, sales coach, and consultant, writer, podcaster, and LinkedIn influencer. He sold his hit podcast, Accelerate Your Sales, to a software company and friend of the program, Revenue.io, in 2020. But we are here today because Andy released recently a new book called Sell Without Selling Out. I've read it. I love it. And I'm excited to talk about it. Andy, welcome to Quotalus. Bobby, thank you very much. Thank you for that kind introduction. You got it. Um, any, any bef- Before we jump into some of the talking points, any other qualifications of your background that you want to share on, on basically why everybody should tune in and listen to you today? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think you sort of covered it. Yeah, I've just been doing it for a long time. Cool. And do it from the perspective, I've always done sort of the perspective of being uh, imperfect and trying to learn more about it. 
Mm, imperfect and trying to learn more about it. I like that. I like that. Um, well, yeah, so, so, so the book, uh, I dove in. I actually have my copy here. As you can see how I read books, I, I write all over them. I corner the ears so I can come back to them. So we'll dive in. I mean, one fast, effective read, which I always really appreciate. Um, you sort of break it down into, uh, for, for me, it really came out as three parts sort of your story at the very beginning, you do a, a good section of like calling out bad sales behaviors. And then you break into the meat uh, and potatoes, which is the four pillars, connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity. Um, we'll get to some of those first. Writing a book is an undertaking. Uh, mm-hmm. I published yes. my first book last year and um, a just bravo. I know it's really hard. And I think you've written two other books before. Right. It's third one. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just curious for this one. At what point did you think, all right, I got something here. Got something I want to tackle. Um, what were sort of those early signs? <sighs> yeah. I've been thinking about this book for a while and, uh, yeah, I had an idea, approached the publisher. I was actually introduced to the publisher through a mutual connection. And yeah, they like liked the concept. It was somewhat the same, but it was, it was approached from a different angle. And it, it uh, yeah, it, doesn't, it didn't flow together as well as what we've done now. But uh, yeah, I worked on some in 2019 and uh, pandemic hit and sort of set it aside to sort of you know, everything was so confusing and it was hard to stay focused over the first six to seven months of the pandemic. And then I got back to it um, sort of fall of 2020 and had a much clearer vision of what it was I was trying to accomplish. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny how pieces sort of fall together as you come up with new ways to describe things that you've done. And that's for me sort of the fun part of the book is, okay, there's things we've all done in life uh, but we'd never really put words to them, you know, name a habit, name a thing you do. And that's actually really important when you're writing a book is naming conventions and uh, yeah, I, how the you know, really thinking through how the puzzle fits together. Yeah. I mean, defining your experience, right? Like brutal yeah. work, brutal work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's the other thing that's, you know, happened to me a lot in my career is because again, I've, always try to be pretty intentional about how I go through it because I've never really, as I described in the book, never really felt like I fit sort of. And as you start reading more about, yeah, certainly sales, but business, marketing, decision-making, life, read the Stoics, you know, all sorts of things, is um, you start finding words to put to the things that you do. And the mm-hmm. things that you've done or things that have happened to you start to make more sense. And that's certainly been my experience, especially over the last sort of 20 years. I've had my own business and I've been thinking about writing the first book for about 10 years before I actually did it. <laughs> and, but all the sort of reading I was doing in conjunction with that, it's like many moments where I was like, oh, I'd read something and go, oh, that's what was happening in this situation with this customer. Oh, that's what, and it's like really helps to be able to put words to it. So that's one of the things I was trying to do with the book is help people sort of put words to what they're experiencing. Wow. Well said. Isn't that a good feeling when you sort of stumble on something that, ah, that that's what was on the tip of my tongue. 
<laughs> well, yeah, or or as a sub for it, that's what I was experiencing. Right. So one of the things I write about in the book toward the end is is the whole notion of the good enough decision, and came up Herbert Simon's work on what he calls theory of bounded rationality, and when I first got exposed to that, this idea of the good enough decision and the constraints he talks about that we all have with decision making, it just like you know sort of mind blowing, right? It's like oh my God, all those times, that's what was happening, right? Deals that happened faster than I thought they were going to happen or customers that just sort of said, okay, we're ready. And it's like, what do you mean you're ready? You know, we've got a process to go through. You can't say you're ready. <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, that's what's going on. Yeah. So those, those moments are always fun. No, that was a really good example um, from the book. Like as soon as you said that, this, this good enough principle, like that really stuck out in my mind when I read it too. Um, but it's so powerful. It's simple, but powerful. It's like everybody wants to think that customers are in it to make the absolute best decision. And they're not. <laughs> it's just full stop. There may be exam- you know, exceptions, right? And Simon talks about, he said, you know, people generally fall into these two categories. Uh, he called maximizers or satisficers. So people, satisficers being people make the good enough decision. Maximizers are those people that will look at every single option to satisfy themselves that they're going to make the best choice. And what the research has shown is, yeah, they do make better choices, but at what cost, right? That's right. Only the, the cost you pay to make that, go that extra mile to satisfy yourself isn't worth it, doesn't pay off. In addition to which, yeah, Barry Schwartz in his book, The Paradox of Choice, talks about this, that maximizers, studies have shown that maximizers actually... Yeah, not surprisingly, are more prone to severe buyer's regret, buyer's remorse, because they always think there's something better out there. Well, and they put the decision on such a pedestal. Right? Well, that, and then they think they, they think they must have missed something. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I have taught classes with and worked with clients where it's like they were they sold something to a group of of clients that there was a high fraction of maximizers in the group. And it's like, yeah, you really have to be careful about maybe qualifying those people out of your sales process because this is a company is trying to scale quickly. It's like, it's not they won't buy. It's just not only to consume a lot of their time, they're going to consume a ton of your time. And you can afford that. Right, right. Just get it off the plate, man. Get it off the plate. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you have to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, cool. Well, as I was writing down sort of um, some of the, the, the excerpts from the book, um, I think I got to like the third one and I was like, huh, what I really like, apparently what really attracted me um, uh, fr- from some of the specific takeaways of the book is that you really make a lot of the book about the salesperson, about the you, right? Mm-hmm. About like um, a single individual's impact on their sales career, on their individual deals, right? Like, um, and I think it's particularly relevant because in the world of software in particular, there's so much light shining on the product and you do a good job of shining light on like, Hey, there's, there's actually, there's of course, tons of stuff not in your control as a mm-hmm. salesperson, but there's plenty in your control as well. <laughs> right. And the goal is to control those. Yeah. Right. And there's, there's some really simple things like the one that really, it's not in the book per se, but it's, it's a story that sort of came up after I was writing, but interaction I had with a guy who's 
yeah, pretty well-known sales thought leader. And, and he was, to me, was disparaging this whole notion that you even need to be friendly when you're talking to buyers. You don't need to be friendly? Don't need to be friendly. His contention, you don't need to be, they don't care. They don't want you to be friendly. <laughs> and again, in any you know, group of samples, sure, there may be a few people that's not important to, but in general, humans are humans. And two points. One is it costs you nothing to be friendly as a salesperson. And it is one of the few things you can control. So why wouldn't you be? Why wouldn't you be warm? Why wouldn't you be friendly with someone? The second point being is that there actually is some research that's been done. And Robert Cialdini writes about this in his book, Presuasion. And he says, yes, it's true. People like to buy from people they know, like, and trust. You know, the old, he said, but there's another point, a fourth point. They like to buy from people they know, like, and trust and who they think like them. Mm. And I just saw another research cited somewhere in a book I read recently that reinforced that point. So how do you make a person feel like they're liked? Be friendly to them. You'd be warm. You'd be interested in them. You know, pretty simple stuff. <laughs> so why wouldn't, you, why wouldn't you do that? If you can't, things you can't control, do the things you can control and do them extremely well. Yeah. Well, I think another thing I liked about um, how you presented some of that, um, some of your evidence is you, you actually didn't overly quote, you know, science and, and, and statistics and research, because it's so sad that right there you had to like conjure up, hey, <laughs> there's research that shows you need to be kind. <laughs> it's like, it's like oh, yeah? can we just take that at face value? <laughs> well, tales, you know? apparently not, because, you know, there are people that, I said, in the... <laughs> you know, ecosystem of like LinkedIn and other places. They're just like, yeah, it's like, no, that's just wrong. Right. It's just, <laughs> it's like the, the whole thing about small talk. And I talk about small talk in the book is there are no shortage of sales leaders and sales trainers that say the buyers are so busy. They don't have time for this. It's like, don't have time for what? To be human? Of course they do. Right. And we know, we know there, there are bookshelves written about small talk how important it is and it's just because people are busy and we have this i think we've built up this mythology about people today that they're so busy they don't have time for you know conventional human interaction which is just bs right you want to connect with someone establish some common ground with them what is what is that's what small talks about how do i find some common ground with you just a small bit of common ground that we can then build on yeah. I think that's an interesting tension though, that you bring up, which is this idea of like, that I think maybe gets misinterpreted is, is, is you know, being very um, comp- uh, customer empathetic, right. Um, and, you know, g- g- sort of going overboard and guessing that like the customer doesn't have any time, like they, 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 you know, you, you have to kind of squeeze into their very small amount of attention. And it's like those two things maybe seem at odds, but they're not. Yeah, they're not. I don't think they are at all. Right. The thing is, you don't want to spend, you know, 15 minutes on something that, that's, you know, at that base level. They may probably don't have time for that. Right. But Well, here, here's, here's the rub. They have time for small talk, but they only got time for good small talk. <laughs> But it's true of everything, right? They they don't have, 
you can say they don't have time for <laughs> for sellers, though they have good do, do have time for good sellers, right? Okay. And that's sort of point of the book is yeah, all this talk and you know, Gardner comes out the research is you know, buyers don't want to talk to salespeople. It's like, well, sure, buyers never want to talk to salespeople. Right in, in absolute terms, right? No buyer of mine was ever waking up in the morning and going, God, I hope Andy calls me today. <laughs> right? It's like, no. But when they had a problem they needed to have fixed, well, something that I could help them with, then sure, they want to talk to me. And that's true of sellers in general. Buyers have time for you if you can help them achieve the job they have to achieve, which is to make a decision. Yep. You can't add value to that. If you can help them make progress in, in doing that, they don't want to talk to you. And that's my condition. That's always been the case. Yeah. Yeah. You, you actually said something I, I just find kind of awesome and hilarious at the same time. And very early on in the book, you actually say this more often than not, your customers make the decision to buy from you in spite of you, not because of you. And I think, I think that's the cold, hard truth. I think it is the cold, hard truth. And, and so as I used the phrase earlier in the book is, yeah, you have to learn how to make sales work for you and not the other way around. Yeah. Right. And that's really what that's about is sure. Stuff gets sold every day by people that do an inadequate job. And <laughs> that happens, but that's not, what, that's not the desired state, right? If you try and build a career in sales, you can't have a successful and by successful, meaning, you're staying in the profession for a long time, right? Not that you've achieved some level of monetary rewards or so on. To me, success in sales is you've made a career out of it, right? You've stayed in it for a long time. You can't do that unless you become the reason your buyers make their purchase decisions. Right. Yeah, I think that's, a, again, that's another thing you bump up against is, is especially early on, I think once you're sort of a seasoned sell, seller, you you lose this, this um dynamic a little bit, but early on f folks want the, the sort of good without the bad for lack of a better way of describing it, where when they sell, when they, when, when a customer buys, it's because they did something great. When a customer doesn't buy, it's because the product or pricing wasn't right. <laughs> you know? That's like, yeah. We're the, the Teflon salespeople. Yes. Um, well, and that's, that is problematic, right? Is, is people have unrealistic views of why they won or why they lost. Um, and we don't spend enough time looking at what I think are really sort of the real critical reasons, which is how the buyer experiences the seller. You know, on one hand, you know, Gartner and Forrester and others have done research saying, hey, you know, 53% or more of the purchase decision is based on the buyer's experience with the individual seller. Now, I happen to believe that's absolutely true. Um, but you know, are we really ever asking our buyers what their experience with the sellers is? We do win-loss analysis, right? Mm. But win-loss analysis tends to be about price and features and you know, maybe some tactical things. But I'm always sort of amazed, like, you know, I'll talk to sales leaders all the time on my show and other places, and they'll say, most of the time a conversation with one two days ago about hiring. Because you know, everybody's in hiring mode, right? Everybody's competing for talent and is sort of running through what they wanted. I said, okay, great. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever asked your buyers 
what they need from your salespeople. Because you've got this list of qualifications you're listing. How does that map to what your buyers need from your sellers? Dead silence, right? Yep. Never occurred to them. No. But <laughs> they're making their decisions. Their buyers make decisions based on their interactions with the seller. Shouldn't we measure what that is? Shouldn't we know what they think about the sellers? 100%. Same thing with training. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I mean, sales, last point, that's, you know, same thing with sales training. Talk to sales leaders. What are you going to train your sellers on this year? Well, we've looked at the data and these are the holes we appear to have. And these are the weaknesses based on, you know, listening to call recordings. Like that. Great. Have you asked your buyers? <laughs> what do they think your people need to get better at to help them make decisions? Never happens. Yeah, there's a lot of meat on that bone, man. I mean, for, for me, what just sort of came up is is even just the 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 win analysis versus the loss analysis. I think for whatever reason, in the sales meetings and sales teams I've been a part of, we're always obsessed with like why something lost, why something didn't close, which overwhelmingly there's usually a lot more of those, but we don't figure out like, well, why did somebody win? Like why mm -hmm. why did it feel really good to them? Right. Like what what again to, to your point, what was that experience like? Um and, and then replicate it. Yeah. Exactly. Go, go find more of those, man. So. Yeah. Well, but that's <laughs> on very simplistic terms. That's what you should be doing, right? Mm -hmm. Is I remember my first boss. Yeah, I remember complaining, <laughs> complaining to him about, yeah, very early, like my first few months. Yeah, I wasn't having any success and complaining that, yeah, couldn't find a way to buy from me. And his answer was, yeah, it's a big world. Go find somebody who will. Right. That's it's sort of, a, that's sort of one of my you know guiding principles in life is yeah, it's a big world out there. I'm having a hard time finding somebody to buy from you, well, go find somebody who will. Yeah, don't complain about the competition. Don't complain about yeah, you know, product or features you have or don't have that, yeah, you know, maybe contribute to losing a deal. Go find people and buy what you have. Yeah, I mean, we we really try to complicate it. But, you know, the, some of the best answers in selling and, and really in life in general are, are, are very simple. Yes. You, yeah. Yeah. Another, another phrase you, I think I, you must have said this or written this half a dozen times throughout the book. Uh, your job as a seller is to listen, to understand what the most important thing is to your buyer. Yeah. Help them get it. <laughs> yeah. And this is, well, I mean, it's really fundamental to the book, right? Yeah. I mean, the paradigm between selling out and selling in. You know, selling out is putting your own interests ahead of those of the buyer. And it's manifested through these salesy behaviors that we do, you know, persuasion-driven, manipulative, you know, perceived as, you know, ethically challenged, whatever. You do that because you think your job is to persuade a buyer to buy your product. That's your job. My job is to persuade you to buy my product. Well, if that's your job, you don't really care about the buyer's requirements. I mean, at one level, the buyer's requirements you don't care about because regardless of what those are, you're going to try to persuade them about your product. Whereas you just mentioned the contrast of that, the selling in is, yeah, what you do is you listen to your buyer, understand the things that are most important to them relative to the challenges they face and the outcomes they want to achieve by addressing those challenges. And then you help them get that. Now that's a whole different way of acting with the buyer. And the buyer's experience of that is going to be really different than feeling like 
you're just purely looking after your own, looking after your own interests and you're being very transactional with them. Right. Yeah. Now <clears throat> there's, there's two areas where I don't know if I agree with you. Um, one is, mm-hmm. is with regards to this sort of salesy behavior and, mm-hmm. and, um, and the like, right. <clears throat> you, you really anchor around like bad training, um, and bad content as sort of the, the seed for this behavior. And I just, I don't know. I think you're letting the sellers off a little bit. I think you're letting humans off a little bit where it, there's just this sort of maybe the status quo of like, we, we just naturally like to control everything. We want to persuade as opposed to influence. Um, we're not necessarily taught that. Well, no, I think I, we learn it somehow. Right. And I think that it's, it's, it's not innate behavior. It's learned behavior. I think it's, I think it's a combination of forces. So I had a great conversation recently with a woman, uh, Don Dieterschmelz, who runs the, um, she called the National Strategic Selling Institute at Kansas State University, which is one of the first universities that were granting uh, degrees in selling. And so they've got a very excellent program they've developed there. Uh, it's one of the pioneers serving the US along with the program in Texas and others. And, um, she talks about when she's teaching introduction to professional selling to her freshmen and they're doing role plays. And these people have no sales experience at all or exposure to sales. She said in the role plays, they're super salesy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. But where do you learn that? Right. And I think it's, yeah, you can sort of conjecture what that might be is, is, you know, movies, TV shows, you know, popular entertainment shows, maybe something in the family talked about, you know, having to deal with a salesperson or something, or, you know, they went along with their parents, went to the car dealership and experienced a bad car salesperson, you know, sort of the stereotype again. But what we do is reinforce it Mm. through the training. And we reinforce it through the actions. And I think it largely does come from management. Yes, I sort of let sellers off the hook because it's the job of leadership to enable and educate them about the right way to do things. But instead, what we oftentimes get, again, obviously companies aren't this way, but is, you know, seller goes out and, and builds a relationship and good connection with the buyer. They start working it and, yeah, the seller's very sincere about wanting to help the buyer get to the last week of the month. Sales manager says, oh, we're short. We're not hitting a number. Yeah. Go close that deal. Go Here's get the it done. Go get it yeah, done. Yeah, get it done. Do what you got to do. So the salesperson who's yeah, invested time trying to build a good relationship and is probably going to close the deal. And I see this all the time. They could close the deal the following Tuesday, but the end of the quarter and the period is Friday. So let's go discount the hell out of the product to get that order in. And so what do we communicate to the buyer? What we communicate to the buyer is like, you know, that stuff is not about helping you. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's not true, right? I'm here, I just, I'm gonna be transactional because I gotta get this deal. So what can I do to, you know, it's the equivalent of saying, what can I do to get you into this car today? And we, so we break this trust that we start to build with buyers. doesn't mean they're not going to take the discount and buy from you. Software world, what that means is they're going to churn pretty quickly. 
right? Because they're looking for a relationship. They're looking for somebody that's going to be there to support them. And in your mind, in their mind, you're just transaction. Yeah. Basically, time and time again. And, and you, you sit with sales leaders that I have done and sitting in meetings with tables full of sales leaders who are talking about, yeah, how we use discounts to get deals and use spiffs to get deals and spiffs are the same thing there. Yeah. You know, degrade your margin just as a discount will. And I'll ask them, I said, so just don't ask anybody at the table. Anybody ever done an ROI calculation on that discount? Right. I mean, what was the return on getting it two days early, monetarily? How'd that help you? There isn't a return on it. It's just the same BS we do. Yeah, you won't you won't get any yeah, you won't get any fight from me on that status quo of like end of quarter, end of month unnatural behaviors and and enforcing things to happen that that shouldn't. Well, um, we, we train our customers to expect it. Yeah, yeah. And and I've personally have run teams where we untrained our customers. It was a little painful for a month or so, but we untrained them. And life got much easier, much more predictable. Growth got much smoother. We had much better conversations because, yeah, you have to, it takes a while to recover from those types of conversations with buyers when you get purely transactional like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's right. And, and man, dude, that's a whole nother, we could do a whole pod on training buyers uh, differently. That's, that's a really interesting Um on path, but, but I, but I, I want to come back to these, these sellers because sure. like you just described, right. Like a, a piece of the book where you, you talk about like you're early on your sales career. And I think you had a really good relationship and a VP or somebody told you, Hey, go get right. this thing done. And, it, yeah. and of course, like I still remember vividly my first sales job. I sold communications door to door, suited and booted every month. It was crazy. It was like, don't leave the seat without five calls to the manager to just like, you know, f- force every little ounce of opportunity and chance you could to, to get a deal across the line. But I don't, but, but the, it has changed. The environment has changed. Like as an example, right? Like if you're a, a sort of a millennial salesperson, you've sort of been grown up in this world where you have just this insane amount of, of what I think is good quality sales content compared to what you had or didn't have and compared to what I had or didn't have, mm-hmm. you know, take, take something as simple as asking good questions. I mean, the, tomorrow I will see 10 posts on LinkedIn that you should ask good questions. Are the questions <laughs> getting better? <laughs> no, no, I, I, yeah, no, don't think so. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I, I think, uh, I think there's still that, and I don't, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I guess I can't well, really. Let's approach it a different way though, Bobby. Let's approach it a different way. So, cause you say I'm letting sellers off the hook is, <laughs> is let's look at it this way. We've all seen the reports come across the, from Bravado and, and CSO insights and other research firms saying, you know, 45% of reps only are making quota. Yeah. Okay. So let's look at this perspective. If let's look at it from the quality control aspect. So let's say you were a plant manager for a manufacturing company and your job was, you're responsible for the output of the product and 
the quality of the product that you put out. And let's say that only 45% of the product you built worked to specification. How long would you keep your job? <laughs> I hope not very long. And so sales manager, this is a sales manager's job is their job is they're building this product, which is the seller. Their responsibility. Yeah. The seller to be able to operate according to a certain level of specification, we'll call it, right? Mm-hmm. They don't. In fact, it seems to be getting worse according to the numbers. Right. Well, there's lots of factors that are factored in there, how quotas are set and so on. But we continue to... <sighs> And I don't blame necessarily the frontline managers even because increasingly they're not given the support and the coaching training that they need to really understand what their job is. You know, if, if, if a seller's job is to go listen to their buyers, understand the most important things to them and then help them get that, that's the very definition of a sales manager's job is to talk to their sellers, listen, to understand what are the most important things to those sellers in terms of business goals and personal goals that they want to try to achieve and then help them get that? You do that as a manager, you're going to have way more than 50% of your sellers hitting quota. But very few frontline managers understand that's their job. Instead, they're being told, manage the metrics, manage the, to the process. But your job is to manage people and develop these people and the capabilities of these individuals. And yeah, if, if truly, which multiple reports are showing, including the one from Bravado, which just came out early this year, you know, 48%, 45%, whatever percent of sellers hitting quota, we've got a problem. Let's fix that problem. But it requires people to really understand what their job is. Right. Right. Yeah, no, no, you'll, you, and, and don't get me wrong. Like, I think I'm presenting this, um, in a way that, um, I want to make sure I'm, I'm as empathetic to the, to the new sellers, the old sellers as anyone. Right. And, um, and it's a, it's a tough, cruel world out there. (laughs) Everybody, everybody everybody has responsibility, right? Right. right. I think that it's fine. You know, I read something a couple of weeks ago, there was a discussion on LinkedIn about, about this topic and, and, Someone said, well, the problem is the sales managers are spending too much time, too much of their time dealing with and coaching and working with the sellers who are underperforming that they don't have time to really help those that are really good. So shouldn't they just stop trying to improve the people who are under? And there were just so many things wrong with that comment. And a bunch of people agreed with it and so on. But it was like, that seems a little silly. Well, it's silly on multiple dimensions. First of all, my experience over the years, and this is you know decades working with lots and lots of companies as you know, both an employee and a, a sales leader and as well as a consultant, is that actually sales leaders spend a disproportionate amount of their time with the top performers. Yeah. And the bottom performers really suffer from lack of attention and lack of coaching because managers sort of make up their minds about them. So that's, that's problematic right there is, you know, so I have sort of this idea about how we solve that and (laughs) no one will like it though. I think it's, it's the right approach is so back to this quality control example, 
So what if for a, a sales manager, we said, look, here's how your, comp- your compensation is going to be laid out. You, know, you have your base, and we'll say that 50% of your variable income will come from performance-based, you know, based on the numbers, like you're getting paid now. But 50% of your variable is going to be based on how many of your reps hit quota. So you're going to get a fixed amount, not a percentage, a fixed amount for every rep that hits their number. And I guarantee you that if we did that, so if you saw sales manager 10 sellers and 50% of their you know, variable, let's say it was 100K, they'd get yeah, $10,000 for every seller, flat rate, they hit quota. And if we did that, I guarantee we'd, A, we'd have many more sellers hitting quota. <laughs> if for no other reason then the sales managers would then go to their bosses and say, that quota you're trying to give me is just too freaking high. We got, and that discussion would change and we start getting more rationality into how quotas were set. Because we get into this, this self-fulfilling vicious cycle is the way you help people gain the confidence to succeed is by letting them experience success. And so when we continually sort of amp up quotas every year somewhat mindlessly, in a way that's not tied to how we've improved the capabilities of the people, right? Then people are always falling further behind and they never experience that consistent success that gives them the confidence that breeds more confidence. And yeah, I gave a talk to a group of CEOs, they're CEOs of a PE firm's portfolio. (laughs) And this is a couple of years ago, again, right before the pandemic. And uh, I said, okay, who's raising quotas for 2020? There's like 30 people in the room. Yeah, they all raised hand. Great. How much? What percentage? So we go around, we sort of agree it's all about 12, 13% on average. They're going to raise quotas. Great. Okay, so raise your hand. You've invested sufficiently this year so that you know that your sellers are all 13% more productive than they were before. <laughs> <laughs> no hands whatsoever. Right. I mean, this is just a series of things, right? Mm. This is which I said, we're sort of thoughtless, if not brainless about some of those things, the ways that we do things. So, you know, we sort of mindlessly set quotas because of some, you know, top-down requirement rather than uh, doing it in a more rational fashion saying, or, you know, investing to make sure that our sellers have upskilled their capabilities in order to hit the higher numbers. We don't do that. We never ask, you know, correlate the skills that we need from the people that are selling our product with what the buyers need from it. We don't hold our managers to account to assure that not just that they hit their number in aggregate, but that a greater fraction of the people selling hit their number because that's going to be better for the company in the long run. Wow, you just said so many good things, Andy. I <laughs> like the, the the manager incentive package there. Wow, I, I mean, I've never heard that, and um, really think it would change things for sure. And oh, people would hate it. Managers would absolutely hate it. But it's the, it's the type of thing you have to do. You have to say, look, let's just inject some common sense in this. Yeah, but do we hate it less than having to fire people and hire them every quarter? Right? Like, like let's hate it less than something else. <laughs> Because well, to your point at the very beginning, like it's, it is broken. It's been broken for a long time. Um, you bring up the quota piece, like 
I think quota actually presents in and of itself, just this double-edged sword where it's like, you, you, you brought up the, the sort of mm, lack of experiencing success. The, the other like less obvious uh, downside of, of quota achievement is that it sort of tricks you into thinking you did something right. Right. Like, like if, if teams hit quota, then they're just like celebrated and they're lauded as like these amazing um, professionals that are doing things right. And, and it may not be the case. Well, almost guaranteed not to be the case. <laughs> so, so yeah, here's the thing. And this is again, something that people just to wrap their minds around is that, yeah, you can, there's a good chance that when you hit quota, you're underperforming. And for a very simple reason. So, have you ever heard of Goodhart's Law? Goodhart's Law? Yeah. No. But Charles Goodhart was an economist in England, mid-60s, something like that. And he came up with this law that's been mathematically proven out, apparently, uh, based on what I've read, which is, the law is that when a measure becomes a target, it loses all value as a measure. So when a measure becomes a target, loses all value as a measure. Huh. Very simple to think about. Yeah. Quota technically is a measure, right? Right. When we turn it into a target, what people do is they optimize what they do to achieve the target. So use it as a measure. It's <laughs> total sense. It doesn't work as a measure anymore because what you're doing is you're saying, look, I'm going to optimize my target process at this target. Well, by definition, you may be underperforming to hit that target. Right. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Your target could be a million dollars a year. If we measured you differently, I have a, uh, <laughs> a way I suggest that people do that. But if we measure you differently, maybe you could really sell $2 million a year. But you're constraining yourself because you're aiming at that target. I mean, you're just doing some marketing for quotaless. I, I put it in my newsletter that the idea of quotaless is that quota isn't a target, it's a limitation. <laughs> well, it is, it is. So I, you know, the alternative, what I believe is that we should be measuring productivity. Now, thing is most, if not all <laughs> people in sales misinterpret what productivity means. It doesn't mean, oh, I can make, you know, 100 phone calls or 50, 70, 50 emails or whatever. Productivity is a pretty known formula for productivity. It's a rate of output per unit of input. That's productivity. In sales, what that means is dollars of revenue generated per hour of selling time. That's productivity. That's right. Forget all the activity stuff. doesn't matter. And we have the capability of, of tracking this. And we have the technology track and we've had it for a long time. We just choose not to because people want to look at it that way. So I've managed teams using this productivity starting decades ago. We tracked it all manually on, on Excel. <laughs> but I knew exactly how many hours of selling time it took for my sellers to generate a certain amount of revenue. And from that, I could calculate what the product, true productive capacity of my sales team was. 
And what, what qualified as selling time? Well, for us, what we defined it as either preparation or execution of a de- an interaction with a qualified opportunity. So we just attract really qualified opportunities, right? We sort of separate out biz dev or sales dev at the top. Right. Because we're really just working about sales productivity. Because I love SDRs, but I don't consider that selling per se. You know, I think it's lead gen, right? So I worked in an organization where we actually um, did some defense work. And since you're, we were doing business with the DOD, we had everybody in the company had to track their hours. Mm. And so we all filled out time cards. And so I had the idea is that before I'd start to go over the group is everybody that wasn't working on DOD projects, we just all charged to a, a job number called overhead. And I said, well, as long as we're tracking this, let's assign job numbers to qualified opportunities in our pipeline. And then anytime you worked on something having to do with that customer, that prospect, whether you're in sales, sales engineering, manager, I captured it all. So I knew exactly how many hours, not only of sales time, but company time it took to generate a certain amount of revenue. That gave me a lot of information about, well, geez, I could look at my individuals and say, you know, Joe took X number of hours to generate a million dollars in revenue and John took Y hours. Why are they different? What are they doing differently? Why is one better than the other? What's John missing that Joe's doing? So now suddenly you're saying, well, okay, this, this is representative of what we're doing. So my goal is as a sales manager, say, look, how do I improve my productivity or the productivity of the individuals? Because it wasn't about adding more selling time, right? Everybody always has says, let's chase after, you know, sellers waste all this time doing bureaucratic work. Let's free that up. You know, sellers only spending 35% of their time selling. You know, that's, it's been that way for as long as I've been in sales, mm-hmm. that number has been the same. We pushed at it, we pushed at it, we pushed at it. <laughs> it never seems to change. So rather than fight that battle, let's just make them more effective for each hour they spend selling. Now, when you do that, you get all these side products out as is, is, <laughs> productivity goes up. Chances are what you're doing is you're increasing your win rates yeah. and growing revenue. And you're doing it with less cost than you would be otherwise. So you have all these beneficial impacts that come from focusing on productivity. So I didn't mean to get on that soapbox, but I think that the, that's an example of how we could replace quota and measure people on what I would do is measure people on not just how much revenue they bought in, brought in, but also in addition to how they improve their productivity. Yeah. If they get somebody the incentive to say, look, I, I want you to become more productive in this dimension, meaning more productive, meaning you're generating more dollars of revenue per hour of actual selling time. Then you can think about the motivation people have to start investing in their own development or sales managers and incentive to invest in the development of their people because that's how they're going to get compensated. Smart, 
I mean, you're, you're, I think you're still in consulting. Does uh, let's, let's maybe celebrate a win here. Have you been able to install that different kind of manager compensation, this, you know, productivity um, compared to quota? Well, the, pro the productivity I've used at companies I worked at and what about like your, but what about like your finger on the pulse of like the latest and greatest software companies accepting that as a, there's people that get it, but they haven't got to the point of wanting to implement it, yeah. which I said, I find ironic because I was managing companies doing this more than 20 years ago, uh, companies that are very, very successful because they're worried about, well, I can't have my people track time. It's like, well, first of all, yeah, you can. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean every, major, every major big firm, consulting firm and a, you know, accounting firm, they do it. Every tracks their time. So I, they, they have sellers there. They track their time. They they track their job numbers, you know, time with jobs to jobs. It's like, it's not that hard, but we can also automate it. There are tools out there that enable you to automate time tracking. You can associate activities to prospects and so on. It's not a big leap. Unfortunately, I think, especially in the software world, they're sort of wedded to brute force selling. Mm. Right? Let's just we're just we're going to invest a lot of money and put a top, ton of crap at the top of the funnel. And if we're just marginally effective selling, we know we're going to close a certain percentage of those. And the way we grow is not to get better at selling, but to put more stuff in the top of the funnel. Because if we keep our win rate a certain fixed percent, drive more lead flow through, even though we're, yes, yeah, kind of shitty selling overall, we can grow. And that's, that's not, I would argue that that's not sustainable. And I think, I think there are a lot of companies out there that are finding out, yeah, it's not sustainable. Maybe if you've hit the mark just right, product market fit, you're a sales force or somebody, you're going to grow despite that. Yeah. Yeah. But for most companies coming up, it's problematic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I don't, I don't want to end on too drive a note of us like just going down the rabbit hole, of, All right. you know, bits and bites of sales process. I want to, I want to call it one piece that, that just really spoke to me. Um, and we'll wrap on this sure. um, in the connection section. You, you write this, you can't pitch someone on why they should trust you. You can't explain to someone why they should build a relationship with you. They have to experience you. Yes. And Man, I, I just thought that was really awesome. It's 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 really good way to articulate. At the end of the day, we are humans. A sale is an exchange of trust, an exchange of like, um, or, or sort of a blossoming or a, a punctuation mark of a relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, put all the incentives, all the tactics, all the strategies to the side. Like, what what in your experience have you found to help? sellers just get better at, at sort of being themselves. Um, because I, I would argue when they're themselves, they're their most authentic self, then they provide the best experience. I agree hundred percent. I think that it, it boils down to having, uh, the determination and somewhat courage. And I say courage with a small C to say, no, this is how I'm going to do it, right? One of the big, far and away, the biggest category of response I've had on the book so far is, is sellers saying, you've given me permission 
to be myself. And I mean, I think on one hand, I think that's great. On the other hand, yeah, it's too bad it got that way. But it's part of the reason I wrote the book is I made the decision early in my career. And I'd write about this, you know, right up front. This, you know, I went to my first sales training class with my first employer right out of college, two weeks in a regional training center in Pasadena, California, watching video, sales training videos, and the techniques that were taught and just thinking to myself, this title of the chapter is, what human being acts this way? Right? And it's just like, I can't act that way. And no, I can't. I'm, I'm not going to. I won't. And for me, it started this journey of saying, well, okay, how do I, how do I carve this path where I can make sales work for me? So you just have to take that responsibility onto yourself. And I now more than ever, you know, there's such freedom of opportunity for people is that sellers need to understand that their ability to succeed is, is based not only on their ability to take control and willingness to take control of how they sell and act in a way that aligns with who they are and their strengths, but also finding the right situation. Yeah, you had Brandon Fluharty on your show, you know, friend of mine, friend of yours. And he's, he's hugely successful and you know, earning seven figures a year and he's trying to help people do the same. But as he and I have talked about, is that so much of that ability to earn a lot of money is based on being in the right situation, right? Because not every company enables you the opportunity, if you really do a good job, to earn that type of money. So you have to go find the right situation. It's true in sales in general, right? If you feel you're in a place where you're feeling constrained, that you have to act a certain way and comply to a you know, process you think just won't work for you, but you think if you were given some autonomy to make some choices about how you might do it differently, excuse me, you're, you're willing to be held accountable for your results, but you won't be given some freedom. There are companies that will do that for you. Go find one that will. Don't spend your time because you're not going to develop the way you want to develop. You're not going to be given the opportunities to you know, spread your wings and blossom the way that you, you want to. And just too many salespeople sort of feel that dual pressure of conforming and then having to act in a way by conforming, act in a way that doesn't align with who they are and then having to meet a number. And I just determined early in my career, hey, hold me accountable for results, but I might do things a little differently in a way that worked for me. And we've sort of gotten away from this, this idea in sales, which was very prevalent when I started. I was explicitly told by my first boss, hey, this territory, which in my case was a both a geographic and a vertical market territory. He said, this territory, you're the CEO of this, this territory. This is your company. You know, operate within these frameworks, you know, because we all have ethical frameworks and, you know, ways that we did want to sell. But with operate within the framework, do what you want. And I did. And I think everybody can do that. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, for, for me, I'll, I'll bring it back to that other mentor you brought up that said, Hey, the world's a big place. If you're not, you're not finding a customer that'll buy from you, go find it. Same goes for an opportunity. If you're not yeah. in an opportunity where you get to be yourself, go find, find money. Out. And there are there, there are, there are great sales managers out there that are doing great job that are mentoring people and doing the right, the right work. Just not enough of them. So we're trying to help. Yes, sir. 
Yes, sir. Well, thank you, Andy. I mean, uh, I hope we did a little bit of the book justice by unpacking it uh, and some pieces of it going down some other interesting paths, but uh, I appreciate <laughs> yeah, you coming you, on today. You, you triggered me. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's the beauty of podcast conversations, man. I, I love it. And, and, and dude, selfishly, I, I am still, I make my money in consulting and I think I got a couple magic bullets that I'm going to take and probably get denied <laughs> by a CEO. Okay. Bring me in. I'll help, bring me in. I'll help you. There you go. There you go. Um, where should folks be in touch, uh, find the book, et cetera? Sure. So the book's available online wherever you buy books and it's available in bookstores. So you go to Barnes and Noble, airport bookstores, wherever you, you purchase books, they're there. Um, if you connect with me, LinkedIn is a great place to start. And uh, <laughs> there quite a bit. And uh, yeah, connect and message me. If you have questions, I'd love to have a conversation. And then you can visit my website, andypaul.com. You can download a free chapter of the book if you want to preview before buying. We also have a little quiz there that sort of enable you. It's not super scientific at all, but it's kind of fun is, is you can sort of assess where you are on the spectrum between selling out and selling in. Cause we're all, we're all a mix, right? None of us are perfect in one dimension or another. We're all a mix. So find out where on the spectrum you sit. And then, yeah, check out my podcast, uh, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul. Uh, as we record this today, episode 1045 just got released. 1045. Beautiful, man. Well, thanks again. Well, thanks, Bobby. It's been fun. If you enjoyed today's show, please go and support it by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can also subscribe to the Quotalist weekly newsletter by going to Quotalist.io. Remember, when you embrace practice, develop awareness, and align your efforts, you can rise above the deal. You can live quotalist.